So let's pray. Lord, as we uh, come to your word, we pray that you would uh, guide us and lead us in your wisdom, that you would show us um, precisely what you want us to hear. And more importantly than that, that you would uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can um, so that we can act upon what we hear, so that your words sink deep into our hearts and transform our lives, and we become people who who are obedient to you. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay. So let's let's read the uh, Bible verse first. So that's the next. Yep, this slide. Did you want to read that actually, Tim? Yes, sir. And hang on, I'll give you this mic. Hopefully I can time it well because I'm doing it myself. <laughs> Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies, not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both, both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners, you are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of his dwelling, where God lives by his spirit. Thanks, Tim. So that's... um this is the uh, third part of our series on Ephesians. Ephesians is a book on the church, so uh, you can expect to hear stories about the church. <laughs> now, many of you have probably heard the, already heard the story of how I moved to Japan one year after graduating from uni. However, um, moving countries, especially back in the early 1990s, before the web existed, is a massive change. There were endless aspects to that move, and the aspect I want to focus on today is my alien registration certificate. 
Now, uh, when I moved to Japan, I needed to get a photo ID like that one to prove that I was there legally. The photo ID was called an, a Certificate of Alien Registration, which you may just be able to read at the top there. And it, mine looked a lot like this, except I looked a lot more like a terrorist with my Ned Kelly beard. And the photo was in black and white, which made me look even more like a terrorist. Um, and uh, <coughs> above where it says Certificate of Alien Registration, the Japanese words there, the first word, is gaikokujin, which literally means outside country person. Gai, outside, koku, country, jin, person. It's usually abbreviated gaijin, or outsider. And let me tell you, in Japan back then, you really felt like an outsider, an alien. You didn't need the card to prove it, but you had it there just in case you wanted to prove it. Japanese society was such a collective society, so tribal that even uh, co-workers of mine who were married to Japanese, who spoke the language fluently and who'd been living there for more than a decade were still considered nothing more than gaijin, outsiders. Now this didn't bother me much because I had no desire whatsoever to settle in Japan. But what did disturb me was when I returned to Australia on holiday after almost two years in Japan and away from Australia, to discover that I was a foreigner in my own land. Japan, it seemed, and the other expat aliens that I'd been hanging out with had changed me, and ALF wasn't one of them. That's a, that's a 90s joke. Um, <coughs> I found Australia strange and foreign. And to be honest, I still do. A year in the US and three and a half years in Hong Kong haven't helped. But this wasn't an entirely new experience for me. Moving from the bosom of a country Christian family to the big city of Brisbane to go to university was my first experience of a foreign culture. Since I left home, I've never found a place where I feel at home, other than my own house or apartment, of course, except for one. The only place I feel at home is in the midst of disciples of Jesus. It doesn't matter whether that group's a church in Shibuya in Tokyo or a university in La Mirada in California or a church in Chimcha Choi in Kowloon or a church in Charters Towers or Tawong or this church here, wherever we're meeting. This is where my home is. So why is that? Well, that's what Paul is explaining in the passage we just read. So let's unpack it a little. Next slide. In verses 11 to 18, Paul explains how we Gentiles were once separated from God, but we have now been united with the Jews as one people belonging to God by Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus' blood removes all need for regulations and human efforts because we now come to God through the one Holy Spirit. To Paul's readers in Ephesus, living only a few decades after Christ's death on the cross, this would have been a powerful and meaningful realisation. 
after 2,000 years of God dealing exclusively with Abraham and his descendants as his people, God has abruptly thrown open the doors to the kingdom to all people. That's pretty amazing, right? Next slide. But for us, it, it lacks the same sense of massive change. Why is that? Because we live 2,000 years away from that event. The church, the new people of God, has been in existence for as long now as the people of Abraham had been at the time that Paul wrote. So for us, salvation history is equally divided into the era when God dealt only with the Jews, when Gentiles were aliens and outsiders, and the era of the church, when all people have been united in the cross through the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's understandably hard for us to share Paul's amazement. However, this same dynamic of separation between holy people and condemned people is constantly repeating itself, even in the church. Throughout the church's history, we've constantly erected barriers against acceptance to the kingdom where none should exist. The barrier Paul talks about in Ephesians is, of course, circumcision, a physical ritual performed on an eight-day-old baby boy or a much older male convert. And the Judaizers in the church were claiming it was still required in order to join with Christ in the kingdom. Paul rejects this idea, not because he's anti-ritual or because he thinks that the Jews never knew God or because circumcision never had any meaning, but because he knows that since the cross, any time a ritual is needed to enter the kingdom, the effectiveness of Christ's blood on the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit are banished. As he says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. And he did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility to each other was put to death. You see, it was, it was never Jewish blood or circumcision that reconciled people with God. It was never sacrifice. It was just Jesus' death on the cross. And in the age of the church, we can look back at Jesus' death in history. We don't need to enact signs of circumcision or animal sacrifice to point us to the reality. We can simply explore the historical reality itself. Signs and rituals become barriers, not aids to understanding.
And yet, despite this, people still add barriers between the people of God. Like what, you might ask? Well, on our way up to Charters Towers, we heard an Indigenous Uniting Church minister from Victoria on the radio talking about how Aboriginal people needed to integrate their dreaming, their holistic and thus spiritual understanding of reality, with their Christianity. And when he said this, he didn't mean that their dreaming needed to fit into God's word. That would mean that God's word revealed the true nature of the world. Rather, he said that their dreaming got to say how God's word applied to them. He demonstrated this with a short Bible study on how to understand Jesus' encounter with the Canaanite woman from the perspective of a victim of colonisation. And let's just say that it revealed a very low view of Jesus as not just a mere man, but a rather bigoted mere man. Now, there's an important distinction to make here. There's nothing wrong with bringing our culture into our Christianity. This minister didn't need to leave behind his stories or his language, his connection to land or the the priority that his culture places on community or a whole bunch of other things. But when any aspect of any culture tries to usurp the authority of God's word, whether it be via a hermeneutic, that is, a way of interpreting the Bible, or by a simple denial of biblical truths, then our faith has been compromised. Jesus puts it this way in Luke 14, 26, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. This is hyperbole, of course, but it's meaning simple. (laughs) Nothing, nothing must be allowed to compete in our affections with the Lord Jesus. Not even our closest blood. Nothing. Now, the truth is, we can hardly blame Aboriginal Christians for pushing back against Australian Christianity. When British missionaries started ministering to the Australian Aboriginals, instead of thinking long and hard about how to contextualise the gospel in a way that would foster the good in Aboriginal culture and draw them into the kingdom of God as joint heirs in Christ, those missionaries simply tried to make British citizens out of them. As if British culture is the culture of heaven. Our grog and our greed is hardly the stuff of heaven, is it? Our ideas of land ownership, private or public enterprise, individualism, the use of nature and so on were all thoughtlessly bundled in with the gospel. Now sure, many of these ideas have biblical foundations. But are they really the only way to love God and our neighbour in the world? I think that that's not the case. 
But for so long, we insisted that that was the only way to be a Christian. And we built an enormous barrier to the gospel that Australian Aboriginals are still struggling to scale. We can't allow these barriers to be erected. They separate us from Christ, but they also separate us from one another. We've built the same barrier within our culture in the past. When I was very young in the Methodist church, there were still remnants of foolish barriers such as no dancing, (laughs) no playing cards, no going to the movies, no drinking, etc., etc., The Bible actually forbids none of this. These are merely human laws that separate us from Christ and one another. Now, I'm not saying that you should spend all your time drinking, dancing and playing cards at the movies. But if you choose to do or to not do any of these things, it should be because that is Christ's will for your life. not because it's necessary for your salvation. Jesus has already died for you. He can't love you or save you any more than that. Sure, there are commands that Jesus gives us which we should obey out of our love for him, but never let us think that our obedience wins us any greater position here or in heaven. In fact, it simply expresses our greater love. We're all brought to God through the work of Jesus on the cross. That reality sets us free. It sets us free from the pressure to perform. It sets us free from the pressure to compare ourselves to others and to compare others to ourselves. It sets us free from the need to justify the good things that God has blessed us with. On the way to church, we had an argument with Italia about the appropriateness of her clothes. We might have the same argument with Tim if he was our son. But it it doesn't make a difference in Christ. We are all one in Christ. We may consider others, but the reality is, that Jesus has saved us, and that's what makes us one. We can, we can take great joy in the blessings that we've received because Jesus died for us, because it's not those blessings that save us, it's Jesus' death. So I'm grateful for my heritage as a British settler of Australia. And I would expect my Indigenous brothers and sisters to be grateful for their heritage as much earlier settlers of this continent. And the cross sets us free, all of us, from the wickedness and rebellion against God that suffuses every human culture. Our cultures, whatever they may be, no longer enslave us. We are Christ's slaves. We're free to draw on the good resources that our histories provide us with it without being trapped by the many evils they contain.
We are more than conquerors in God, in Christ. And because of this reality, because Christ has saved us and that's the only way that we got here, the church is the one place where multiculturalism can function. Why? Because, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You're members of God's family. Members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. All of us are equally members of God's family. Our cultures give us a rich diversity rather than bitter division. God has reversed the bitter divisions of the Tower of Babel and he's done that by the power of Jesus' blood. Because the church is a community of people who have been transformed, renewed, born again through the Spirit of Christ, we're not defined by what we do or what we were. And so we're free to love one another in the midst of our diversity. We're unthreatened by our differences because we share in common something that's so much greater. Remember how I said that Japanese have always considered a foreigner to be not Japanese. Well, despite this, there is a way to become a Japanese citizen. The final step in this laborious and lengthy process is to revoke any existing citizenship and to change your name to a Japanized name that can be written in the Japanese um, character sets. So my name would be Marukomu Risugo, which is a little bit different from my original name. You needed to give up your, you need basically to give up your identity as a foreigner in order to become a Japanese citizen. The same is true for the kingdom of heaven. We have to give up our worldly citizenship in order to become a citizen of heaven. And we receive a new name as we discovered in our study on the the letters to the churches of Revelation. We receive a new name written on a little white stone. The same is, um, so there are so many implications to this that we don't think of. For example, Mabel and I will be husband and wife for mere decades, hopefully. It's been a couple of decades, so we've already made it into the plural. But because we are citizens of heaven, we'll be brother and sister for eternity. Which relationships are more significant? I can be Italia's father for decades, but I'll be her brother for eternity. (laughs) Which relationship is more significant? I can be a CEO for decades, but 
I'd be a servant of Christ for eternity. Which role is more significant? So how does all this affect how I live my life? How should it affect my life? Surely our greatest purpose is not to be the best dad or husband or boss or employee or house owner or whatever, but rather to be carefully joined together in Christ, becoming a holy temple for the Lord where God lives by his spirit. In a time when many are falling away from the church, when they're disinterested in loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we're unconcerned for the body of Christ, thanks to the distancing effects of the responses to this pandemic, it's shocking to remember this. The church, the body of Christ, the temple of God, the united people of God, is the most important thing in the world. It is, we are, God's light to this dark world. We're the only thing that will continue forever, the only organisation that will continue forever. So let's love God and one another with such single-minded devotion that the world can't look away. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we make a pretty weak effort on our own. The church has always failed you. It's always fallen short of your glory. And yet you choose to work through us. You choose to dwell in the midst of us. And so you transform broken and hopeless and, and, and rebellious people who are struggling in their relationship with you and with one another into the bride of Christ the city of God, a light that shines out over the whole world, your body that will dwell with you in heaven forever. It just, it just doesn't make any sense, Lord. And we're so grateful. We're so grateful for your blessing, for your, for your unbelievable love. And Lord, I pray that for each of us, your Holy Spirit would kindle your spark within us and help us to love you with all that we are and to love one another. And Lord, I pray that as we love one another as you have loved us, that the world might see that we are your disciples and that they might be moved to realize that they need to be your disciple too. We pray this in Jesus' precious name.